It's a hot August day. We're in a tiny rental car in suburban Boston, driving between the mall, the library, and the parking lot of a McDonald's, trying to interview a man the FBI has spent the last 40 years investigating. I'm approaching four and a half, five hours of stakeout number two. <laughs> Just hanging out on public walkways, hoping he'll come out and talk to us. It's the second time this summer that we've flown all the way from Chicago to try to get an interview. But our subject hasn't spoken to the media in over a decade. He used to love to talk. He did local TV interviews. He sent letters to our newsroom, the Chicago Tribune. He talked for hours with the FBI, offering to help them in an investigation where he was the target. There's the famous staircase where the FBI came down the 2009 raid with the banker's boxes filled with... The FBI searched his condo in 2009, right here, about 20 feet from our car. It was the first public indication that authorities were still investigating him for a 1982 crime. Since then, we've learned so much more about the events leading up to this raid and what happened after. We wanted to talk to him. So we spent hours waiting. And then... That's him. Hi. Don't run. I'm not going to hurt you. We're with the Chicago Tribune... He wasn't what I pictured. He was wearing knee-high running socks, shorts, and a T-shirt that said, I heart my awesome wife. He had white hair and a full beard. He was older now and unsteady when he walked. You used to like to talk to the Chicago Tribune. Why are you so quiet now? So I did. That was a long time ago, 40 years ago. I know, 40 years. Do you have any theories on who is the Tylenol killer? I think that's fairly obvious. Not to me. Ladies, you've been harassed over something for 40 years you didn't have anything to do with? In September 1982, people started dying mysteriously in Chicago and the surrounding suburbs. They were all young and they were all healthy until each of them took a Tylenol. It rocked the city. It was huge. People around here have become even more frightened of what police call a random killer. Everybody was scared to take pills. The manufacturer recalled more than a quarter of a million bottles. It was just off the shelf so fast. It caused an international panic and a 40-year search for the killer. One of the most intensive manhunts in Chicago history. The manufacturer offered a $100,000 reward to anyone with information on who may have poisoned the pills. From the beginning, there was no clear motive and no clear suspect. Well, there have been suspects, but nobody got caught. I'm Christy Katowski. And I'm Stacy St. Clair. This is Unsealed, the Tylenol Murders a podcast from Atwill Media and the Chicago Tribune. Episode 1. Steak, Flowers, Tylenol. Our story starts in Arlington Heights, 
the Chicago suburb where Christy and I began our reporting careers. It's a community about 35 miles from downtown Chicago. There are homes with neatly manicured lawns, and the train station is filled with commuters at rush hour. It's a nice place to settle down and raise a family. In 1982, a young couple named Adam and Teresa Janis were doing just that. Adam had moved from Poland to Chicago about two decades before, when he was just a kid. He met Teresa on one of his trips back to Poland. They fell in love, and Teresa came to the United States. They got married, had two kids, and bought a house on Mitchell Avenue. It was a quintessential starter home, made out of tan brick, three bedrooms, and picture windows. It wasn't anything fancy, but to Adam and Teresa, it was the American dream. Wednesday, September 29th, started as just another day. It was Adam's day off from the post office. He wasn't feeling great, but he ran some errands and picked up his four-year-old daughter from preschool. On the way home, he stopped at the grocery store. Adam's brother, Joe Janis, remembers that day. He went to get some flowers to Teresa because they had some kind of celebration. He picked out a bouquet of lilies. He also bought some steaks and a bottle of pain reliever. At home, he put away the groceries, then went to the bathroom. He took two pills from the new bottle. And then Adam came walking out of the bathroom, clutching his chest. He says he's not feeling good, so he went down and laid down in the bed. Teresa followed Adam into the bedroom. Looking at her husband, she instantly knew something was wrong. She ran to the neighbors for help. Teresa called Joe Janis, Adam's oldest brother. I got a phone call. She says, uh, Adam uh, got a heart attack. He's in uh, Arlington Heights Hospital. Joe rushed from his job to the hospital, but he was too late. At 3.15 p.m., Adam was pronounced dead. They said that he died of heart attack. That must have been unbelievable for you, that he yeah. died of a heart attack. Yeah, he was a young person. How could he die of heart attack when, you know, he never complained, you know? That's the same question that paramedics had, too. Chuck Kramer was the fire lieutenant in Arlington Heights. His crew had tried to save Adam earlier that day. And they said, guys, we had the worst call you've ever seen. We had a guy, 27 years old, built like a baby bull, gone. They suspect a heart attack, but symptoms were funny. And I said, what do you mean by symptoms were funny? He said he was still alive, and his eyes were fixed and dilated and non-responsive, just like if he was dead. And his breathing was rapid and shallow. After they got the news, the Janus family went back to Adam's house, the same house where he had fallen ill just a little while before. Now he was dead. The family decided to start planning his funeral. At the house were Adam's two brothers, Stanley and Joe. Stanley wasn't feeling well, so he went into the bathroom. His older brother Joe was in the living room. Joe remembers that out of nowhere... Stanley came to us... And all of a sudden, he's falling down. And then when he, he dropped on the floor, white stuff was coming from his mouth. And then uh, I look at him and he says, his eyes was turning white. I said, oh my God. 
Stanley had just taken some pain reliever. He had a headache and a bad back. His wife, Terry Janice, had taken two as well. The family called for an ambulance, and Chuck Kramer's squad responded to the call. Deja vu is exactly the same dispatch, 1262 South Mitchell for the man down. I told the guys, get on the engine, we're going to follow. It was chaos on Mitchell Avenue. There were crowds of people. And as we pulled up in front, I started to go up to the house and I could hear screaming come out of the house. I walked in and one of my paramedics looked up and you could just see it in his face. He said, I don't know what's going on here, Lieutenant, but he said, this is the same thing as the guy this morning. The paramedics started working on Stanley, and his wife, Terry, was right there, watching. She and Stanley had just gotten married and returned from their honeymoon. They hadn't even gotten the proofs back from the wedding photographer. Terry was screaming and crying, calling out, Stanley, Stanley. She was holding on to my arm, and all of a sudden, she let go, and I heard her groan, and I turned around, and she collapsed right there. Chuck shined a flashlight into Terry's eyes, but they were fixed and dilated. I'm looking at what's going on. I said, guys, this isn't heart attacks. There's something wrong. Stanley was just 25 years old. Terry, only 20. The medics put the couple into ambulances. Adam Janice had died just a few hours before. Now, two more people from the Janice family were being rushed to the hospital. A similar pattern was happening across the Chicago area. And the Janice story would be the key to figuring out the mystery. As the ambulances raced toward the hospital, one of the doctors was on his way out. I was going home. Dr. Thomas Kim was the chief of critical care, confident and well-respected. Just a few hours earlier, he pronounced Adam Janice dead and broke the news to Adam's family. Now, two more people from the same family were right back at the hospital, but this time on stretchers. Dr. Kim met us outside. He could not believe what was happening because he said they just left and they were fine. I came back and told the ICU nurses that I'm still here. I didn't go Dr. Kim because- treated Stanley and Terry right away. He quarantined everyone else in a meeting room. Dr. Kim wasn't sure what was causing three young, healthy people, all from the same family, to suddenly pass out. Maybe it was carbon monoxide or botulism possible suicide. But none of those seemed right. Joe Janice looked around at his family. He was afraid they'd all be dead soon. I was shocked so bad that I didn't know what was going on. More than a dozen people were in quarantine, including Fire Lieutenant Chuck Kramer. Chuck sat there feeling useless. There was all this commotion outside, but he was trapped in that room. Then he called his friend Helen Jensen, a public health official for Arlington Heights. She was the village nurse and handled everything from home visits to flu shots. If Chuck had to be stuck in quarantine, 
waiting to see if the Janices and his crew would live or die, at least Helen could continue investigating. It was around 7 p.m. when Helen got the call. She was cooking dinner. We were just sitting down to eat when the phone rang. I said, Helen, I don't know what's going on here. I said, we've lost one young person in his 20s. We got two more that are not good. And I brought everybody to the hospital. There's something wrong here. And she says, I'll be right there. Helen went right to the hospital. She started by interviewing Teresa Janice, who lost her husband, Adam, earlier that day. Teresa was standing all by herself on the other side of the room. And she did not speak very much English. And her brother-in-law came up and started to interpret it. They huddled together, translating from English to Polish and back. She walked Helen through the day. Her husband, Adam, went to run errands. Then he came home, clutched his chest in pain, and died. The family went back to the house, and Stanley collapsed, then Terry right after. I went to the cops and said, I want to go out to the house. I want to take a look for myself. It was um, a nice house, clean as could be. And I went through the refrigerator and I went through the shelves I, you know, to see if anything was spoiled in the refrigerator. Nothing was. And then I went into the bathroom and I found the bottle of Tylenol. In the garbage, I found the receipt with the day's date on it. And I emptied the bottle and I counted them and put them back in. Now, I probably didn't wash my hands, but I should have. I counted and there were six capsules missing. And I said, it has to be something to do with this bottle. That was the only thing in common for all three of them. Helen took the pills back to the hospital and found an investigator with the medical examiner's office. I told him that there are six capsules missing. It has to be the Tylenol. There's something in the Tylenol. And he went, oh, no, no. I was not believed. So I stamped my foot and said it louder. This woman that you don't know standing there with her shorts and a T-shirt, of nobody of any kind of authority. I was so upset. I went home and had a stiff drink and complained to my husband. Helen tried to wind down with a glass of scotch, and she cried. I said, I know it's the Tylenol, and they're not paying any attention to me. But Chuck Kramer was paying attention to Helen. He thought she could be right. Maybe it was the Tylenol. He waited with his crew at the hospital to see if they'd been exposed to something more deadly. So finally, Dr. Kim comes in and he says, okay, I don't think we're dealing with some sort of a virus. Dr. Kim wanted to run some tests to confirm. I'll let you know if we find anything out afterwards. So I says, okay. Chuck and his crew were let out of quarantine. They were free to go. On the way back to the firehouse, Chuck picked up his radio. I said, Engine 3 to Central, Engine 3, Ambulance 3, Squad 1, Ambulance 2 are all out of service, going to Station 3 for decontamination. So that went out over the radio. One of Chuck's friends, Phil Capitelli, heard the radio call. He was another fire lieutenant in Arlington Heights. And when he heard that, he thought, what the hell has Chuck got there? Phone rings. It's Phil Campitelli. He says, Chuck, what's going on? I said, Phil, we've had a day like you wouldn't believe. 
They said the only thing that these people got in common at all is they all took Tylenol. Phil says, Tylenol? I says, yeah. He said, this morning, my mother-in-law works with a woman, and her daughter died this morning in Elk Grove. Less than 10 miles away from where the Janices lived, a 12-year-old girl named Mary Kellerman had a sore throat. On the morning of September 29th, she went into the bathroom and took a Tylenol. Mary died while her 7th grade classmates were starting school that day. Chuck called the hospital and told a nurse what he'd heard from Phil. There was now more evidence backing Helen's theory that it must have been the Tylenol that connected all three of the Janices. And now they knew about a fourth victim, too, Mary Kellerman. And then there were more victims. Two other people collapsed in the Chicago area. Both had taken Tylenol. Both were also named Mary. Mary Lynn Reiner was 27 years old. She had just given birth to her fourth baby a few days earlier. During her recovery at home, she took some Tylenol capsules. A few hours later, a 31-year-old single mother named Mary Sue McFarland had a headache at work. She also took some Tylenol. Her friend and co-worker, Diana Hildebrand, was there. And then... She walked out on the floor, and she came back. I don't even know if it was 10 minutes. Um, and said, I don't feel good, and then just collapsed. We're all trying to do CPR and call 911, and the paramedics got there. And he said, do you know if she took anything? And I said, well, yeah, she took some Tylenol, I think. By the end of the day, September 29th, 1982, Mary Reiner, Mary Sue McFarlane, 12-year-old Mary Kellerman, and Adam and Stanley Janice were all dead. Terry Janice was still on life support. Joe Janice and his sister spent the night at the hospital. The doctor kept the entire family there, just to be sure. Were you afraid that you were going to die? <laughs> of course. So then we stayed there the whole night in quarantine. Me and my sister, I was in one bed and she was in the other bed. And they were watching us. When are we going to die? I mean, did you guys get to sleep at all that night? Or what are you talking about all night long? I was like frozen in that hospital. I didn't even speak with my sister that time. I was just looking at her and she's looking at me. If we're still alive. I was afraid to go to sleep, yeah. By the end of the night, Dr. Kim had heard about the possible Tylenol connection. But Tylenol was acetaminophen, and he knew what acetaminophen poisoning looked like. This wasn't it. If the Tylenol was the connection, it must have been something else. He just needed to figure out what, and fast. With every passing moment, there were lives on the line. He consulted poisoning experts, scoured his old medical school books, paced back and forth in his office. And then, Dr. Kim had a wild thought. (music) 
In Dr. Kim's office, late that Wednesday night, he landed on something. Maybe the Tylenol was contaminated with a deadly chemical, one that was easy to get and easy to hide. He took blood samples from Stanley and Terry, the young couple who had just died. He put the vials in a taxi cab and sent them to a lab for testing overnight. At the Arlington Heights Hospital, an investigator for the medical examiner's office heard about the Tylenol connection, how maybe that was the link between the Janice family and Mary Kellerman. The investigator called his boss, Dr. Edmund Donahue. 1982, I was the deputy chief medical examiner for Cook County. Dr. Donahue had the same theory as Dr. Kim. And there are only two uh, poisons that kill people so rapidly. The first is cyanide, and the second is nicotine. The investigator had both bottles in front of him. Donahue gave him very specific instructions. I want you to open the containers and smell them and see if you can smell cyanide. Cyanide has a very distinctive odor. It's traditionally described as the uh, odor of bitter almonds. Not always, but when it does, it's a pretty good clue. Sure enough, when the investigator opened the bottles at the hospital, there it was, the bitter almond smell. There was cyanide in the capsules. The medical investigator gave the capsules to a toxicologist to run some tests. While he worked, Dr. Kim's lab results arrived. The Janice's blood had a lethal amount of cyanide. Donahue's toxicologist found the same thing with the two bottles of Tylenol. Each poison pill had enough cyanide to kill at least three people. Helen's hunch had been right, and authorities now had the scientific proof to back it. The next morning, Joe Janice got the news. He was in his hospital room. And then in the morning, they called us in their one room and told us, you know, what happened, that they were poisoned. Cyanide acts fast. If someone ingests it, it can take just a few minutes to start destroying the body. Inhale it, and it only takes a few seconds. Now Dr. Kim had the answer to what happened to Adam and Stanley Janice. So they released Joe and the rest of the family from the hospital. Terry was taken off life support the next day. Three people, all from the same family, were dead. It was an unthinkable tragedy. The work of an unknown killer. Investigators figured out quickly what killed them. Now they had to figure out who killed them. Before it was too late... We're going to get to the bottom of this, and we're going to do it very quickly. But nothing about the investigation will turn out to be quick or easy. And the death toll wouldn't stay at six for long. For exclusive details about the first 24 hours and more, visit chicagotribune.com forward slash Tylenol Murders. And keep checking back. We're posting news stories each week through October 27th. Unsealed 
The Tylenol Murders is executive produced by Will Melnadi from At Will Media and Mitch Pugh from the Chicago Tribune in association with AudioChuck. Produced by Claire Ty, Jessica Glazer, and Anne-Margaret Warner. Edited by Morgan Springer. Fact-checked by Wu Yan. Production support from Clementine Ford, Molly Getman, Zach Rapone, Matt Hickey, Andrew Holtzberger, Seth Richardson, and Mark Van Heer. Mixed by Daniel Turek. Original music by Hannes Brown. Reported by us, Christy Gutowski and Stacey Sinclair. Coming up on this season of Unsealed, the Tylenol Murders. We don't know the extent of the contamination, so I think at this time uh, it would be wise not to take extra strength Tylenol at all. How they had been contaminated, by whom, and how many other bottles there might be, nobody could say. We had no subjects, nobody of interest that we had identified. A task force of more than 100 local, state, and federal investigators is looking into seven deaths linked to poisoned extra strength Tylenol capsules. He says it is easy to play cyanide. It is easy to get buyers to swallow the bitter pill. I can fly to any city quickly and plant more cyanide in stores all over the country. Was this person just a crank who was playing games and tweaking law enforcement? You have, you have mass murders all the time. Just prove it to themselves that they're a criminal mastermind. The person who committed this is enjoying the attention right now. And the fact that he or she had outsmarted the law enforcement. It was sort of like a game, I think person who made it clear that he could arrange for the killings to stop. We kind of had a feeling, I think, deep down that something wasn't right and it wasn't going to be good. There are prime suspects at this point in time by anyone's definition of what a suspect is. The entire time that this person is talking to you, he is fantasizing about the crime. We had hours and hours and hours of conversations as to how the Tylenol killer might have done it. If you can find the right trigger mechanism, he can have a psychotic leak. So something was very, very strange about that whole thing. And he just broke down and started crying. It was inconsolable, really, because you realize you killed the wrong guy. Quite frankly, it was a very disorganized murder. So it's like a crime within a crime. Once you smell a decomposed body, you can never forget it. The state's attorney, supervisor said, it's a non-starter, they won't do it. I wanted the jury to know this was an awful thing that he did. Game's over. Case, case just went down the river. A person walks into the Arlington Heights Police Department and says, I think I know who did the Tylenol poisoning. The FBI says there are new leads tonight in the fatal poisoning case from 1982 in which Tylenol capsules were laced with cyanide. I don't think we've spoken to a single detective in this case who isn't still frustrated 40 years later by the politics. It was all politics at the time, especially election year. Once you start deviating from whatever your normal procedure is, you're making a mistake. Just none of a jive. It just didn't fit together. Is he making that story up? I can't. I just can't get into it. I, I wish I could. <laughs>